And tonight, of course, uh, we're, we're con- trying to continue because we have a few more of these to do before we get into our middle sort of spring Sunday night when we're going to take up the study of the book of Exodus, which will be a great, great time looking at all that God taught his people and all that they learned about God in the circumstances through which he brought his people. But tonight, as I said this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the whole matter of change in the Christian life. We live in a tension as Christians, and it will always be this way until we meet Christ. It seems as though we find places in Scripture that call us to battle and other places that encourage us to be at rest. There seems to be tension in those dynamics. It's true that in the Christian life we are to stay alert and at the same time we're to have a a dependence upon the Lord's strength for him to do what only he can do. We live in this tension where we're called to strive and put forth our effort and with diligence and in your faith add moral excellence to your life and yet it is the grace of the Lord Jesus that supplies the strength that gives the effort its spiritual eternal value and so it is the case that when it comes to our growth in Christ discouragement often comes because we live in that tension and we don't have perfect balance. None of us are perfect balance. We need the encouragement of the whole counsel of God. We need the plan that God has given to us to grow, and yet at the same time, we must depend upon Him, trust Him, rejoice in the work that He is doing. I remember years and years ago, at the beginning of my Christian life, I was beginning to experience a lot of that tension, and my heart was regularly discouraged by the comparison between my life and how I was trying to be mature but wasn't, and it was up against the backdrop of Scripture, and the standard and the mark was so high, and those early years of trying to forge the basics of the Christian life wasn't happening as I'd hoped. And then, of course, we need the comfort of the Lord. And I remember listening to the Bible teacher on whose ministry I cut my teeth, Dr. John MacArthur, and I remember he was studying Ephesians. And he made some statements in that sermon in one of those sermons in that study that I uh, became so encouraged by. It was insight I hadn't really thought about. And it came from his look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. So look with me at Ephesians 2 verse 10. Dr. Dr. MacArthur had said in that sermon... All of your growth, even the seasons where it's hard to come by and hard to see, is right on time in the Lord's perfect plan. 
He went on to say he's not surprised at all that you stumble and struggle and fall flat on your face. Not surprised at all. You're right on time. And it was a reality that I needed to hear. And it came from this great text in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship. We're his craft. The Greek language here is vivid and we dare not narrow it too far. It is a Greek word from which we get the English for verse or lyric or poem, poema in the original language. And some have tried to narrow that down. Oh, we're the poem of God. You know, some artist type people want to take it to the fluffy level. But actually, it's much richer than that. Yes, it, it has the artistic idea to it, but in a much deeper way. The word literally could be translated that we are a work that has been fashioned. Or we could say it this way, we are a vessel or something that has been crafted by its artisan. And it could be any kind of work. So that the verse is trying to say we are a people who are the work that he has fashioned and is fashioning. It's why F.F. Bruce said it this way, we are his work of art, we are his masterpiece. I like the word masterpiece because it exalts our God in the work of redemption as he ought to be exalted in our hearts and minds. He's a master of this. He knows when he saved you. He knows the work that needed to be done. He knows the struggle and the difficulty and falling down and getting back up. And we just sang about it. Even though we wander, he is faithful to constantly bring us back. With regard to the word masterpiece, which was how F.F. Bruce translated this, one commentator said this, we are God's works of art. And he said, I don't think there is any more exalted description of a believer in all of Scripture. You and I are God's works of art, his masterpieces. I needed to hear that my Christian life was right on time. I needed to hear it early in my Christian life because of that tension we are in. And we are a people who are constantly falling off on one side or the other. We have all this great victory at certain some season and we let our guard down and, and we're vulnerable and we think, I got this. And then we're in a season of falling down and flat on our face and we say, this, is, this must mean I'm not saved and I'm never going to make it. That's who we are. We bounce back and forth from those perspectives between those views all the time. We hear the humbling truth that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works and our mind starts to immediately rush to all the areas of our life where there's not that much to rejoice about. You might even get cynical. Well, if I'm one of God's masterpieces, 
and he must have lowered his expectations. Verse 10 teaches us that it is God who has fashioned us in Christ Jesus. The standard couldn't possibly be higher. We're fashioned in Christ. The standard didn't drop. Christ is the standard. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes there. He's the standard. We never take our eyes off the standard. That's never to be a way to grow. And the text says that we're created for good works. So these are the works defined by God as good, which means that he looks at his wondrous work of saving us, and he looks at his wondrous plan to change us, and he says that he prepared beforehand that we will be walking in these good works. I needed to hear that as an early believer. I've needed to hear that every season of my Christian life, and I need to hear that tonight. He's prepared beforehand that we would walk in these good works. In a very familiar text, we won't have time to go there, but a very familiar text to us in Romans 12, verse 2, we are not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may test and come to prove what the will of God is. Here's how it's described. That which is good and acceptable by the divine standard and perfect, complete. We're on that path. You're on that path. You're right on time. Nothing that goes on in our life from the highs to the lows, from the mountain peaks to the spiritual valleys is a surprise to God. None of it. 2 Timothy 3.17 tells us that the word of God reproves and rebukes and corrects and trains us in righteousness that we would be equipped for every good work. There isn't anything left out in God's plan for his people, even though he knows there's work to be done. There's work to be done. But it's also true that a sinner saved by grace can't be unaffected. You can't just imagine that the Lord saved you so that you could get sort of back into the old patterns and the old ways and the old self-centered dynamics of your life and habits, the old ways of thinking, the old imprisoned ways of doing what we did. There's no going back once redeemed. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a moment, verse 14 kind of covering the subject a little bit topically tonight, so we're once again doing a little bit of a Bible drill. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, For the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because it, deep within us, we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. What does he mean? He's referring to the old life. It's literally, as we talked about this morning, been completely crucified, dead, and he died for all with this purpose, so that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. 
on our behalf. That's, that's the language. The love of Christ constrains God's people. Even when you're in those valleys, have you ever noticed that the love of Christ is pulling and tugging? It just grabs, it pulls, it tugs. It's, it's the inner work of the Spirit, as we saw this morning. But as Romans 8 says, he's pulling you back to wanting to be reconciled, to say to God, Abba, Father, you're my you're my heavenly Father. I love Christ. I'm controlled and constrained by the love of Christ. I can't stay in this valley. He knows you're in the valley. You just can't stay there. He knows that he has shed his love abroad in your heart. And the love of Christ is going to control you. He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died. We live for him. He prepared these works that we would walk in them, so it's to be the course of our life. He prepared the good work so that it becomes the course of our life, that walking terminology we've looked at, even when we were studying the Spirit's ministry in Galatians 5, that we are to walk in it, be, be in the habit of it, to make our choices, the habitual choices that God would want us to make, to reformulate the way we think and then the conduct that comes from our thinking. All of that is to be after the fashion of Christ and, and we discipline our life for the purpose of promoting that. We walk in those good works. So, in a study like this, and because I don't want to do it in more than one part, we're going to blast through some things. They will be familiar to you, but I'm just going to try to frame them up in a fresh way because of what we talked about this morning. If the Spirit's presence is there, and it's the ever-conscious presence of Christ, and we are to live all of our life, every moment of our life, in that reality of His ever-near presence... And he's got an instructing ministry and a comforting ministry and an exhorting ministry and a sealing and a persevering, right? He preserves us as he motivates us and convicts us to persevere in the things of his purposes and his will. If that's his ministry, then, then there are ways that we can sort of get ourselves into a disciplined step-by-step -step process. There are many ways to frame this up. I'm so excited about a future super seminar coming up with Dr. Don Whitney, who many of you know from his book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, and he's going to come and help us understand how to get down to the practical uh, bare bones, sort of, what do you do in your daily life and how do you work it out in these disciplines that God calls us to have? Somebody came up to me and told me that they were encouraged now by the, this morning they were telling me that they have kind of hit the new year running uh, with a new way to be exposed to the truth and to saturate their mind with the truth. And that just gets exciting. That's energizing because I know what's going to happen. And they were already giving testimony of what God was already doing through it. Just the repeated exposure to truth 
was already beginning to see the Spirit work on their mind. And I did that when I was first a Christian. Uh, I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't in ministry so full time. I, I had no responsibility per se like I do today, which moves me into the study of Scripture at that level. But back when I was a new Christian, I didn't know how to do that. And so I just took any method I could. And, and some of them were just, they just, it was all about just saturation level, and I remember, uh, the, and many of you also know that, again, our mentor, John MacArthur, used to say, sit down and read the same uh, book of the Bible, or if it's a bigger book, carve it into chapters, like seven chapters, and read straight through it for 30 days, once in one sitting. Just read the whole seven chapters or the whole small book. And then the next day do the same and do that for 30 days and watch what happens. And it's true. I did the whole First John thing. And I, uh, I, I was stunned at, by the time I was at day 10, I was, things were coming off the page, connections and ideas and thoughts. And then I'd go to work and it's on my mind and somebody would ask me a question and, you know, First John is on my mind. I'd never had that happen before. I could actually find a verse in Scripture to tell somebody something and give them an answer. I felt like a Bible scholar all of a sudden. <laughs> the Spirit of God was already beginning to do things. And by day 20, I, I had already had several temptations. Oh, you already know it. You read it over again. You're just going to read the same thing. You know how your flesh does. Satan doesn't want you doing that. And I just pressed through it because I wanted to see what would happen. And wow, I was amazed. And by the time I got to day 30, I just had a new appetite growing. Even though my life was just as filled with business and clutter as it always would be. We're going to have to structure our life. So, so let's just take a swipe at this. If the Spirit is doing this work in us and He's the permanent presence of Christ in us, then the key to growth is going to begin right there to be controlled by him. Maybe we'll say it this way, point number one, yield to the Spirit. We'll go over this one quickly because we've already been in Galatians 5, but I'll just remind you what we studied not too long ago in Galatians 5, verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit now talk about a victory verse, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. <laughs> that is as plain as it gets, beloved. Oh, I can't, I'm always going back to the desires of the flesh. Huh, you must not be walking by the Spirit. The diagnosis is pretty clear. You weren't walking in the Spirit. You haven't been walking in the Spirit. You, you got to walk in the Spirit. Because if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. To... Live according to the Spirit would be a good way to define the terminology here. It involves your mind. It involves your affections. It involves your, your motivations and your inclinations and your desires. It involves your choices, your way of reasoning things. All the inner life, that control center of who we are on the inside, all of that is to be pulled together into this walk that comes under the work of the Spirit 
the word of God given by the Spirit, the conviction that comes when you are exposed to it, and the encouragement and exhortation from it that he brings to your mind and heart when you are exposed to the truth. You are to bring yourself in all of your inner life under it. And the result is you will see the power of God over the desires of the flesh. You will know the excitement of saying no to the old life. You will know the comfort of a cleaner conscience than yesterday. You will know the richness of a free walk with Christ that has no uh, unresolved baggage. You, you will know the wonder and beauty of looking at Christ without the clutter of something that is a stronghold. The Bible promises that if you are yielding to the work of the Spirit who is that ever-constant presence of Christ in your life, then the power of God shatters and defeats the flesh before it takes hold. The other side of it, then, is whenever the flesh is taking hold. i got to look at this area. Somehow, somewhere, a motive, thoughts, thought patterns, an affection, a choice, a way I reason, a fear that's gripping me, uh, a good thing that I've bowed down to as an idolatry, that it doesn't prefer the Spirit or His will, but prefers me, some area of selfishness I haven't paid attention to, all of that, it's not been brought yet under the Spirit of God in humility. And i gotta, I got to look at that area. We've seen this before. Notice verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, that means living by... The power of the Spirit carried along in the Spirit's power. If you are led by the Spirit, he says, you're not under law. That's right. Uh, we're not condemned by the law, having been saved from its standard and its condemnation. But if you want to experience the power of God rather than the control of the flesh, then it only comes by allowing your will to be led by the will of God in the truth. The will of God in the, in the commands of the Spirit, in the work of the Spirit. Rather than being ensnared, rather than even getting into a state of constant discouragement over failure, no, just come back to the Lord and say, Lord, i got to look at this. I'm not yielding to you in this area. I'm not under the sway of sin. I'm not under its dominion. You, you must understand that is a mindset. You remember Romans 6, verse 11. You have a mindset now, a conviction that you are not alive to sin anymore. You're dead to sin. We've looked at that extensively, but you are alive to God. It's interesting that Ephesians 5, just taking a look at another way that this is said in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, the next book over, you see the contrast between something else that can control you, and in this case, Paul references here the abuse of a substance 
a mind-altering substance. And he says, I don't want you to go down the road of trying to inebriate your conscience with substances. I don't want you to be living in dissipation and excess and drunkenness. That's foolishness. That's excess. That's sinful dissipation. But on by the contrast, I want you to be filled, not with not with earthly things that inebriate and numb and and excite the flesh and appeal to the flesh, but I want you to be filled to the brim with the work of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the joy of the Spirit, the, the, the amazing victory that can come in a, a sincere yieldedness to the Spirit. I want you to be filled with that, filled to the brim, overflowing. The filling language Paul likes to use is just, it's just the idea that it's constantly saturating everything. It's permeation to the point of overflowing. You can live this way. Jesus describes it in John 7 as rivers exploding forth over its banks, rivers of living water coming from the inside out. That's right. How else would you be able to rejoice in a tragedy? How else would you be able to say no to a stronghold that's been there for a long time? How else would you be able to be thankful uh, when there has been a season of really difficult weakness? How else would you be encouraged in the face of your own limitations? It's only by being permeated, filled Translation of this could, could have expanded to include the idea of control. Not just saturation and not just filling, but a constant yieldedness through which the Spirit then controls our actions and controls our thinking and controls our desires. All of which, by the way, you would know by the Word of God. You want to know the Spirit's controlling your desires? Well... Do they match the Word of God? Do they match the Spirit of truth? Do they match what He says? This is why in discipleship it's always about opening the Word of God and looking to that standard. It's not We're not the standard. I, I don't disciple someone to become some sort of cookie cutter to the way I uh, live my life. It, it should be as we come under the Spirit of God and are conformed to Christ and then we call someone else to look to those same truths and yield to them so that they conform to the image of Christ. That is what Paul means when he says, mimic me as I mimic Christ. So yield to the Spirit. We've looked at that extensively in the past. Secondly, you're going to have to run from every hint of worldliness. You're going to have to learn to run from any hint of worldliness. First John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. It doesn't say you're not in the world. Paul would tell the Corinthians, look, you, you are in the world. You can't isolate and go up onto a mountain and be by yourself. And I, you're, you're in the world, but... That's your job, to be a witness and a light in the midst of a crooked generation. What you're not to do is love it, nor the things in it. You say, well, 
What, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean generic things. It doesn't mean that you don't love a landscape that's beautiful and the ocean that's relaxing and a vacation spot that's your favorite and strapping on boards to your legs and going down some icy mountain. You love activities. That's not what it's talking about. He is saying, do not love the world as separate from the things of God. Do not love the things in the world. What are the things in the world? He mentions them. You should not love the things that appeal to the sinful flesh. You should not love the things that we look at as idols and we want them for ourselves. You should not look at life in the world as a way of boasting about yourself, the pride of life. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. The desires of the world, the ethics of the world, the morals of the world, the cravings of the world, the activities of the world, as opposed to the things of God, don't love that. Don't have any hint of it in your life. You say, well, I feel like I fall into worldly thinking all the time. Yes, we, we do. That's the whole point. You've got to learn to run from it. Learn to recognize it. Learn to run from it. Do not love it. The self-centered value system. How much of our failure to be faithful to commands in Scripture is because there are Things in the ethics and the value system of the world that we should not love, but we love them, and we have not identified that we love them. We've ignored it. We've, we've glanced at it. We've not taken a close look at it. If your Christian life has uh, an area that has come to your attention that needs to grow and you need to pay attention to it, it may very well be that in that area there are ethics and morals and values that you've embraced that literally are against the Word of God. They're against the things of God. So there's more than a hint sometimes in our life of a love of the world. Sometimes there's a well-nurtured, well-cultivated affection for those areas. And we're not to love them. James 4 says that friendship with the world, kinship, to love those things as if the world is family, is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's right. There's no harmony between Christ and Satan darkness and light, the temple of the living God and the temple of idols, come out from their midst, Paul would tell the church, and be separate. Don't touch what is unclean. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, Galatians 6.14. The world's been crucified to me and out of the world. It's, it doesn't have any power over me, but, but I'm going to have to run from any hint of the love of it. 
And that's a hard area because it's sneaky. The love of the world is sneaky. It comes in through a lot of gates in our life. Friendship with an unbeliever. We're trying to witness to them. Do you remember James chapter 5 says, be careful. Be careful because you're supposed to hate the garment polluted by the flesh. And when you're going to snatch some unbeliever out of the, out of the fire like a firebrand, you could get scorched. You take bed with a lost man and be consumed by their way. Be careful. It's sneaky. It comes in through some area of leisure, entertainment. Sometimes an ethic at work. Sometimes a family member, a respected but unbelieving grandfather or uncle or father or mother has taught you a way to think about things. And because it's family and it's blood, it got into your bloodstream and, and yet it's worldly. Sometimes it's a, it's a standard of morality that has come in very subtly, very slowly, just, just chewing up what the Bible says, and it's working its way into the church, and it has become now normalized. It's the love of the world. And we're told to run from it. Wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. And it's passing away, Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7.31. It's passing away. It's, it's powerless. It has no eternal value. It's passing away. It's exactly what John says in 1 John 2. These things are passing away. All that's in the world is not from the Father, and we're not to love them because all of that is going away to destruction. How shall we who died to sin still run after it, still live in it? Thirdly, keep your truth guard up. Yield to the Spirit, run from every hint of worldliness, and keep your truth guard up. This is so simple, isn't it, this plan? It's just, we know this, but we need reminders. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. I love the shortness of the instruction here, which in some ways, when you see the instruction and it's very short, then we can't complicate it. I like that. There's not a lot of, not a lot of peripheral thought around it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. With regard to what you hear ideologically. With regard to what is spoken to you ideologically. I mean, is there ideology floating around today? I mean, it is everywhere. And frankly, we're going to do better if we have the disciplined turning off of some of it, you have to know your threshold, beloved. And frankly, 
it's just constant. And Satan knows that he has us captive to it because we have these wonderful things that make our life function and they're wonderful and great, but Satan is going to use all of it and it's just coming constantly. If you, if you sit down every uh, morning over coffee or every night or somewhere through the day and you just scroll through your typical portals, um, you've got ideologies coming by the hundreds just in news reports. What do you do with those? You got to keep your truth guard up because as the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians who was a, they were a new church, do not quench the work of the Spirit. Don't despise revelation as it's coming to you. But here's what I want you to do when you're hearing things. Verse 21, examine everything. And the verbal idea here is with great care, carefulness, concern. Notice you're to look at it closely. That's the examined terminology. Look at it closely, carefully, thoughtfully. Get after it. Think about it. Compare it with Scripture. Look, in one sitting, how many ideologies can come at you and you haven't even, you haven't even thought about a passage of Scripture. You might have a grid of Scripture and you're at least listening to the news and some ideology or some book or some relative telling you something and you're starting to filter it out. But you got to get to the standard and the clarity of the standard. Hey, why? Why is that not coming across my ear comfortably? Why? Don't ignore that. You let your biblical instincts work and you examine carefully and precisely everything. Why? So that you can hold fast to that which is good. The whole point of this is to find the truth and hold fast to it and to run from, abstain from, get rid of every form of evil. And the whole verbal idea there is the front end of evil that's subtle and hardly noticeable and the deep works of evil that are blatant and ugly. Everything, every form of it, every kind. You're to abstain from it. Some of your translations say appearance of it, but it, it, it was appearance in the translation not to mean just the outward form of evil, but the beginnings of it. As it starts to appear, run from it, abstain from it. Because it is, at its core, evil. The whole point of keeping your truth guard up is so that you're not conformed to the world. Ideas, as Sproul famously said, have consequences. Ideologies introduced by Satan, though the front end of them might be somewhat innocuous and seem to be innocent, man, there's poison it's poison if it doesn't match Scripture. How are you going to know that if you don't examine it carefully? You've got to keep your truth guard up. We know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We, we memorize it. It's on your post-it note and your dashboard covering your speedometer. <laughs> Whenever I say that, somebody laughs. I think, ah, it's true, see? See? That's why you laugh. You know what I'm talking about. Every thought captive. Every thought. Man, I, I can think a lot of thoughts in about 
30 seconds. Every thought captive to what? To the obedience of Christ. So no ideology gets in. I keep my truth guard up. Fourthly, strengthen your faith muscle. Strengthen your faith muscle. Listen, you are not to waver in unbelief. This is the heart and soul of biblical change. You can run with all your might from the ideologies of the world. You can fill your mind with the truth of Christ, but you're going to have to, you're going to hit those moments, those thresholds where it's going to become a conviction or it's going to be easily knocked off course because you did not come and really give yourself over to it. This is familiar terminology for us. We've often talked about entrustment. What is, what is entrustment? Well, to give yourself to the disposal of the truth. God's not going to... I mean, He is going to grow you by putting you in the test. He's not going to... Uh, he hasn't planned for us to grow outside of weaning us off of our own will in the moment. Christian growth is to come to a threshold where it's your will or his and you're as frightened as you can be to let go of your old comforts and you're nervous about following the truth and it's uncertain to your flesh and your flesh because of the old habits is crying out in that moment there is the threshold to cross and there is where faith as a muscle can gain strength Cross it. Cross the threshold. Throw off the flesh. Don't let it hinder you. Don't act like, well, i got to manage that moment. Lord, I'll give you a little bit, but not all of it. No, he wants all of it in that moment. Not my will. That's what he wants. All of it in that moment. And that's how your faith grows Romans chapter 4, Abraham grew strong in faith and didn't waver in unbelief. There, there's the terminology for us. He grew strong in faith and didn't waver in unbelief. Why? Because when everything looked like it, it didn't make sense and it was a royal mess and he was asked to walk forward, he just took his hands off, off of the situation as to his own will and purpose and said, I believe. And his belief wasn't mere talk. His belief wasn't holding something back. It wasn't faith with doubting. It was faith without any doubting in that moment. We doubt all the time. But you have to suppress that if you're going to strengthen your faith muscle and come to that threshold and say like Abraham, I believe. And in believing, that means I'm giving myself to this plan. Whatever your plan is, whatever your purpose is, I'm giving myself to it right now. And it's going to take every bit of my security blanket away. All that's going in this moment. And the faith muscle strengthens. And your flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8.13, gets mortified, starved.
So yield to the Spirit, run from every hint of worldliness, keep your truth guard up, strengthen your faith muscle. And lastly, you're going to have to pray courageously. <laughs> pray courageously. Boldly and dependently seek the Lord for His grace. You say, isn't he promised his grace will be there? Yes. But look, he didn't promise us his work in us without calling us to his commands. You understand that? There was this whole idea that you could actually just sort of sit back. And Years ago, they had their whole Keswick mantra, let go, let God. It was supposed to be the virtue of being strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. But it was appealing to the flesh. Yeah, I don't want to strive. We kind of had a 2.0 of that about 10 years ago. Yeah, there's no striving. You don't strive. Hey, to strive is to go back to the law. Really. I thought when we got saved, the law was written on our hearts. I thought when we got saved, Romans 8, 4, we can now do the works of the law by the power and grace of God. I thought we loved God's law. It's our meditation all the day in Christ. No, the, the point here is to pray courageously while you're... Trusting in the strength of the Spirit of God to be there against the weaknesses that we have. You're God's workmanship. You're right on time. There's no reason to go off this side and become despondent and discouraged. I must not be an elect. I must not be saved. Look, your very struggle over that proves that the work of the Spirit of God is going on inside of you. That's why you don't deny Christ. That's why... This work is happening and the Spirit's at war. But you don't go off on that side into despondency. You pray courageously, Lord, I need your strength. I am at the wall here. I'm at the threshold. This is a stronghold. This has been a tough thing. This has gone on for months or years. And I know you've given me the power and you've prepared beforehand that I should walk in these things. Oh, Lord, I need. I need to be strong in the grace that's in Christ. I need your grace. He promises it, but he wants us to pray boldly for it. Otherwise, we would sit back. Haven't we already proven that enough times in our life anyway? We already know that instinctively, that we sit back. I mean, we can one minute be at some conference, just, I, mean, I just love the Lord. Hi, being obedient. I just love Christ. And I just came out of that sermon by Vody Bachum and I am just going to conquer. <laughs> and then you pick up a hamburger on the way home. It's all gone. Your passion's gone. You just completely sin your way to bed. It's like, who am I? That's the time to pray courageously. Lord, you know me. You know my frame. And I'm your workmanship created in Christ. I'm right on time. And I need 
to strengthen my faith muscle and I need to yield to the spirit and I need to run from these old things and I am at times a royal confusing mess and at times I know your strength Lord meet me and keep me from the left or the right keep me from appealing to my flesh to let go and not strive at all and keep me from the pietism of saying I can do this in my own strength and I'm going to do it because I've got willpower and Lord keep me off of either side help me be supplying in my faith moral excellence by the strength which you supply pray courageously Man, the list really could go on, but there's a, there's a plan right there for how we grow. And if you are new to our church and you hadn't really known how to think through Christian growth, and you've often had that sentiment that basically cries out, I just can't seem to change, then remember, God prepared beforehand that you as a believer would walk in these things. You're on his plan. And we're called to these steps as a regular part of our life. I might even say that through all of these steps, there's to be this hopeful thankfulness that we're redeemed and that the Spirit of God lives within us. Weren't you thankful this morning at just looking at this promise that we're not left as orphans? That thankfulness ought to permeate all these steps all the time. And sometimes that's an area we need to grow in. It's just to be hopeful and thankful instead of always sour and self-pitying about weakness. Sometimes that's just about our reputation. I don't want to fail because I don't want people to see me fail. I don't want to be embarrassed about failure. I don't want to feel the guilt of failure. <laughs> It's not about Christ, that's about you. We need to even turn from that and say, Lord, I am who I am. I'm not what I was. I'm not what I yet shall be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I'm right on time in your plan. And you are counseling me and instructing me from the inside out by your spirit. Help me to boldly and courageously walk in that. Lord, thank you for just this study and the discussion that Brian and I are going to have about it all across our church. I'm, I'm so grateful for the laborers in this flock, our elders, pastors, those that have been in you a long time and know how to soldier in the battle and find the strength that you supply who disciple others. I'm so thankful for a church that thinks through these things in this way. I'm so grateful. We trust you. We trust the work of your spirit through your word. And yet, every day we cry out to you, help our unbelief. We ask for your grace to deal with these things, but we often ask with doubting. Sometimes we just want your strength so that we can spend it on our own pleasures. 
and yet you have called us to these disciplines, and you have placed your spirit within us to help us and guide us and lead us in them. And that's how we change and grow. The plan's always been the same, and from these steps, it just spreads all through your word and this marvelous, masterful work that you're doing. Thank you that we've been fashioned in Christ Jesus for good things. And may we hold that hope out in front of us because it's been promised to us that this work will not fail. Even if we remain faithless, you remain faithful because you are bringing us to glory. This great work you begin, you will complete it and are perfecting it until that day in Christ when we see you face to face. Thank you in your holy name. Amen. We're going to try to uh, rein this in and work this out uh, practically. You guys know uh, if you've been a part of these uh, Sunday nights, you know what these are about. This is really just us kind of getting into some conversations over the sermon, talking through implications, uh, thinking through, you know, what might be some of the barriers in our heart even to what we just heard. So, so I'm sure these times have been fruitful. Hopefully tonight will be no exception. Jerry, I was thinking as you were, uh, as you were teaching uh, tonight, you know, one of the things that we've talked about, I know one of the things that I've always appreciated when I think about preaching that I would say is, um, is maximally beneficial in the way that God in, intended preaching to be is, is preaching that makes God's word simple and not complicated. And, and I think through your five points there in regards to sanctification, and I think probably as you're walking through those points, we're, we're all going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That, that's, that's a process I have in my mind. I got some thoughts in regards to ways that that intersects with my own heart and my own sanctification. And, and so we can walk through, I mean, each of those five points, yield to the spirit, um, run from worldliness, uh, keep your truth guard up, strengthen your faith muscle, pray courageously. All of those are so... Um, intrinsic to what the scriptures teach. And I was thinking about that because sometimes when it comes to battling sin, when it comes to sanctification, what we have a tendency to do is complicate things. Mm -hmm. we, have, <laughs> we have a tendency to make them more complex than they need to be. Do you guys Could, agree with that? Yeah. <laughs> Could you talk to us a little bit about um, what drives us there in our heart and, and what might be the remedy? Because I'm thinking about even times, let me give you an example. I'm thinking of times in discipleship when I've met with someone or times even in my own heart, when I've wrestled with my own heart and we've looked at this process in scripture, we've looked at principles that drive this, these points in our sanctification. And yet we have a tendency to, to want to argue with them, to want to think there has to be something more here. Talk to us about that. Well, isn't it ironic? There's probably a lot of other reasons we could talk about uh, as to why we fall into that trap. But it's a bit ironic that uh, we are complicating it by trying to make it simplistic and easier. So in other words, God's plan, we argue with God's plan because it's going to push against the flesh and we would much rather have the pleasure of saying yes to God without the pain of saying no to sin. 
pretty much. So we complicate it when we argue with God's plan and purpose because we, we would much rather believe ourselves, trust ourselves, trust in our own plan, our own way of doing it. In fact, we, we do think, I know this is a temptation to think this way, and as long as I've been a Christian, these things bubble up into the, our fleshly minds and hearts, certainly true of me, the idea that I, I could be made holy some other way, surely. Especially when a difficulty or a test is put into our life as we're promised must happen for our sanctification. I mean, God told, he, he didn't keep anything from us. You're going to have tests to test your faith, to produce endurance. And I do this because you're, you don't have endurance. And the whole time he's giving us a test, we're like, I can endure on my own. Just, you know, please. I mean, I don't mind a test, Lord, but... By Sunday, it should be over, and I should be going into the week with that deal covered. We complicate it because we're trying to make it easy, and we, we actually have this idea that we could be sanctified some other way, and there's, that's just us complicating what should be fairly clear, what is, what is clear and should be fairly uh, simple to us. I think there's also a corollary opposite as we're trying to be simple about it, like so often the Bible does tell us, simply, we have our adversary, the devil, who wants to foist his devices upon us to try to tempt us to think it's not that simple and that it's much more complex than that. So that then we're going to be actually confused because it can't be that easy. And so he begins to foist upon us that idea that it's not that easy, it's going to require this, that, and the other, and then we do become overwhelmed, and therefore we get frustrated, and we buy the line. So we have both sides of the coin. You have, uh, the t we have the tendency to complicate it because we want it to be easier than the tests. On the other hand, we get confused by the way Satan tempts us and we start getting into our own strength and instead of the simple plan of God, uh, we actually try to grind something out on our own and end up discouraged and despondent. And that was some of the way that you opened it and you talked about that tension. Um, and talked, you know, particularly about the, the tension that we find that was alleviated in your life, or at least to a certain degree uh, alleviated in your life, though the battles weren't over at that point. But uh, you, you found the, the source of the remedy in, in that sermon where MacArthur used the terminology to summarize Ephesians 2.10, that you're right on time. So just talk to me about this for a second, because what about, I'm just thinking of the, the ways that we might throw up um, in our lives uh, defenses that would say, well, I, I can't be right on time. And here was one that, that I had thought about. What about someone who would say, well, yeah, but the reason that I am where I am is because of sin. The reason I am where I am is because I actually haven't followed this process in some areas of my life. I'm now finding chastening. I'm finding extended seasons of weakness because I just haven't lived in all the strength that I should have lived in in those seasons. 
How can a person look back on a season like that and maybe find some of the encouragement that, that you found in Ephesians 2.10 um, and that idea of being right on time? Well, that's a great question. And frankly, I always looked at it like, you know, the it's a tension, but Ephesians 2.10 doesn't change. I'm always his workmanship. So you're asking the question, how can his workmanship involve a season of weakness and sin? Well, God knew that when he saved me. And he, in his work, knows that I'm going to resist and stumble and fall and, and I'm going to have chastening that he's going to bring, a la Hebrews 12. I, he, he knew all that. So when I'm in my sin, the idea that I'm right on time is not in, that, that truth of Ephesians 2.10 is not intended to cause me to not strive anymore because frankly, 2 Peter 1 tells us, hey, when you've lost your assurance because you're in a season of sin, you're stumbling over whether you're really in Christ, then you need to go and supply moral excellence with diligence. So it's very interesting. The solution isn't sit on your laurels because God is sovereign. No, but, but yet Ephesians 2.10 is true. I'm his workmanship. Even seasons of weakness he uses because it exposes something in me I needed to see. I needed to see the depth of my sin. I needed to see the, the struggle with it because I'm an idolater. I needed to see just how deep the rabbit hole goes. And so he allows us to go into those seasons because he's going to bring us out of them in perseverance in ways that, you know, similarly you see it in James, or in First Corinthians chapter 3 where he says that you need to be careful how you build because when you meet Christ, his very holy presence is going to test your works and some of your works are going to come through the flame of his glorious testing as precious jewels of righteous work, and then some of it's going to burn up and just be ash. Um, but you're still saved, yet so as through fire. Well, that's sometimes what happens to our Christian life is we, we've got areas that get stubborn. And the whole time he's chastening us, he's doing it because we're legitimate sons. What does Hebrews twelve seven say? It is for the discipline that you endure, God deals with you as with sons. So you're in the tension of it, but it's not so you sit on your laurels and say, well, I'm right on time. The encouragement I got from it was because I was already so discouraged. I, I, you know, Lord, why would you even pay any attention to me when here's your easy command and I just, I bail on it all the time? Well, I needed to know I was his workmanship, not so I could sit on my laurels. In fact, it, it energized me to strive more. What did you say? Yeah, that's another, that's another aspect that I think in our cushy age of not what you and I might call true Christianity, but churchianity. The cushy age in which we live mitigates against striving. This, this matter of sanctification is hard work. It's hard to press against yourself when you know you're doing the wrong thing, you're saying the wrong thing, you're thinking the wrong thing, you know it's wrong, you know the hard work of righting the wrong by repentance and faith, and no one said it wasn't going to be anything except hard. A striving, 
all of these words in the New Testament that speak of, of a pressing in and a striving and a hardness to the work, that's what's expected. But we're often not willing to put that hard work in because it's frankly, in our judgment, too hard. And so we gravitate to something else that's easier to see if we can sort of uh, shortcut the process and uh, maybe I'm gonna get singed a little bit and not burned entirely, you know, with my good works. But you and I have to, to realize that as much as God is working in us as his workmanship, Satan is against us. And he's going to do everything that he can to subvert what God is doing. God is in control of Satan, and Satan can't utterly overturn us and our faith, but it is a spiritual warfare of epic proportions, Ephesians 6. So is, is that because, see, and, and we underestimate the dynamic. Yeah, we want it to be easier, and the cushiness of our, our lifestyle and our culture over the decades has not helped. Uh, but, but also I think about the reality that you know, this is because sin is that powerful and it has no sway over us in terms of the Spirit's work in us. But if we feed the flesh, it, it, it's gonna go places we never wanted to go further than we ever would have imagined we would go. And we're gonna be in that stronghold longer than we ever calculated. So it's, we are underestimating the nature of the old man that still has appetites warring against the spirit. Ephesians 4 mentality of how we look at sin that describes it as its advance in our life being with greediness. And I think about that description there often and think, man, sin truly is greedy. It'll mm -hmm. take more ground. It'll continue to take more ground. We'll never be content. As soon as we start yielding to it, we're no longer in control. Sin is. And, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that because I think, I think one of the greatest promises in our Christian life in the whole scripture is one that you referenced tonight in Galatians 5.16 in your first point. You know, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's like you want to talk about a, a promise for our life to avoid everything that would otherwise destroy. So... But I was thinking about that, and Lance, maybe you could address this. Um, so that's a promise to a Christian in regards to spiritual victory coming as we yield to the Spirit. So as we do that, we should be experiencing victory. And, uh, and what I was thinking about is why is it that oftentimes, as we're yielding to the Spirit, as we're walking through this process, we're doing these five steps, what's happening in our life doesn't feel like victory. In fact, what hap what's happening in our life feels like we're just getting dominated <laughs> and struggling all the more. Help us diagnose what's happening there and how we you know, approach the promise in Galatians 5.16 as a result. Well, one of the things that jumps out on the page is sort of what we might call the, the participial aspect of the Christian life, walking by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, we, we can't be deluded into thinking that once we become a Christian, we're so in the realm of the Spirit, though we are, 
that the battle becomes easier, it actually intensifies. Because now for the first time, we're fighting against yielding to our sin. Whereas before, we just bought the line of our sin, hook, line, and sinker. But now we're attempting to say no to it. And sin does not give up easily. And if you looked at the sort of tripart, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, we have, you know, a three-way whammy that's, that's against us at all times. And that walking in the Spirit tells us that it is a process of everyday warfare. And the walking in the Spirit is both a constitutional reality. We're no longer a part of the old man. We're a part of the new man in Christ. We're new creatures. But we're not totally new in the sense of complete, perfect renovation. There's a lot of construction that needs to, to take place. And because of that construction, brick by brick, we have to realize that it's going to take us the rest of our lives to our last breath for God to complete that work in us. It, was just, it just reminded me of why we had this, this redo of the view of sanctification this last 10, 15 years. Because it's, it's as though, you know, we made such a bifurcation between, we, we made grace into something hyper Right, that you didn't actually have to fight the flesh at all. It's somehow gone. And, and if it is there, um, all you do is just completely repeat the mantra, but I'm saved by faith alone, and I'm saved by grace, and I'm saved by faith, and I'm saved by grace, and there's no condemnation, there's no condemnation. You know, <laughs> as if to sort of ignore what you just said, that the battle intensifies and, and sometimes we, I think that's the very notion we're, we're, you know, resisting. What do you mean it has to intensify? Well, yes, of course, because this work he began, he is completing. Well, how is he going to complete it? When we have the old appetites rattling around in there, we're to be a witness, we're to be a testimony, we're to conform to the image of Christ, we're predestined for it. That work has to go on somehow. We can't just sit around and, and repeat uh, and put on repeat that we've been saved by grace through faith. And that's why in, in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, when it talks about the old man, new man exchange, it uses words and phrases that show us that we're still in the battle because it'll say something like this, Ephesians 4, our former manner of life. It, it could be that we're seduced and I'm sure Satan works overtime to, to do the seducing, we could be seduced into thinking, well, I have a former manner of life that doesn't characterize me anymore. That's true. But that doesn't mean that our former manner of life has been completely extinguished. And because it's not completely extinguished, it is formidable. And... Though there's less sin than there used to be, the sin that's there is far more heinous to us now because we're so far more sensitive to it. 
And because of that, even though I can rejoice in the goodness of God by faith and through repentance, loving the work I see him doing, but becoming so discouraged at the sin that remains. And yet, just keep that in balance. Your former manner of life is the victory, but the victory has not yet been attained in its entirety. But it will be. And that's the, that's the joy of it. No matter how discouraged you become, Satan is not as powerful as our God. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. And God, the Spirit, will give us that, that our walking papers so that as we are walking in the Spirit, He will give us His energy, His power, so that we are able to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Now, will we say yes to righteousness at each and every turn? Of course we won't. But as we are progressively saying more no to sin and yes to righteousness, we're going to be encouraged. And as we're encouraged, we're going to see God as so holy and so mighty, but also so loving and so gracious. And that's this beautiful balance of seeing all of the attributes of God come, come beautifully to our hearts, especially when we get discouraged about you know, the, the sin that we're combating. And our precious Savior just reminds us. And that, that's part of why I love tonight, because Jerry was also transparent about his life, about not only the beginning of his Christian life, but throughout the Christian life. And that's so refreshing because sometimes I think some folks in a church congregation can assume very wrongly that we who are full-time in the ministry and doing most of the preaching work is that somehow that makes it easier for us. It's, it's actually the opposite. We're a greater target. And if Satan can bring us down, he most certainly can discourage you in greater ways because we looked like and then became phonies to you. So we want to not misrepresent the truth that we're learning all of these same principles and we're lear learning them often in new ways and new vistas of thought. I mean, half of our relationship is on the phone, in person, talking about new ways that we're trying to discover how to both walk in the Spirit more effectively and how to say uh, no to sin more seriously. And, and that's a wonderful thing. It, it makes us real to each other, and it doesn't put on airs that somehow we're in some kind of a spiritual stratosphere uh, that mere mortals don't live. And that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, Paul tells Timothy to take great pains and be mm. absorbed, you know, in the matters of his own personal mm. character. And he says those things will ensure, interesting terminology, both your salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. You know, it's like That's right. spiritual battle at all levels within the congregation. Jared? Can I give one example of that? Recently... And this, this seems like it goes back to the idea of s s simplistic kind of uh, 
Christian uh, terms and practices. Lately, I've been finding myself as I pray just in my mind that I get distracted. I don't know if that's your uh, experience. No, but... no, no. We've, <laughs> we've talked about that many times. They don't, they don't have that. I'm sorry, Lance. I didn't hear what you were saying. I was yeah, distracted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, what, what, what were you saying? So, you know, I'm praying and then, you know, and then I start thinking about something and then I remind myself, wait a minute, you're praying. And, and so just, I just was sitting there and I was actually grieved over it because I'm talking to my God. And why would I get distracted when I'm in the presence of the Almighty? Well, it's apparently not working anyway, even when I think that thought. So I have decided just recently, I mean, just within the last couple of days, that one of the best ways that I could redeem um, my prayer life and make it more enhanced, and because and, it is one of the spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, is to, especially when I'm driving, but not just then, uh, when I'm at home and, and alone, to pray out loud. And you, you may have already... It's not that I hadn't discovered that before, but by way of practice, I wasn't doing it. So now I'm, I'm consciously trying to pray out loud so that I'm both praying in my mind, but my ears are involved in listening to my own prayers so that I won't be as distracted. And it's really helped me. It's really helped me focus and not be distracted with anything and everything. Even when you're driving, because my eyes are open. Thankfully. <laughs> but, but the reason I bring that up is because that's so simple. But it's something that could enhance and fortify your spiritual life because of the two greatest means of grace, as the Puritans call them, the Word of God and prayer. And so I just want to keep that up and and you can ask me are you still praying out loud and and I think that's going to help me because I want to be a person who's probably as much involved and enjoying my prayer life as I am my reading I find my reading of the Bible and books about the Bible to be incredibly easy but I find that my prayer life especially being focused in prayer is the harder of the two. So I'm trying to make the harder of the two a greater strength and the one that's the greater strength and even greater strength than before. Well, plus there's a dual benefit there because anyone who rides with you, you're no longer singing in the car. So that <laughs> Amen. is, that that is true. Amen. Amen. Brothers in Christ. Thanks, Lance. Exactly. <laughs> You know I've got about seven jokes on that right now. <laughs> Only seven? <laughs> Jerry, I had a couple of just some practical thoughts that I really wanted to kind of walk through at the end of our Q&A time. And, and the first one I was thinking about was this in regards to that idea of running from every hint of worldliness. Um, I think that's oftentimes a bit of our struggle, particularly early on in the Christian life, is we just don't want to flee. You know, and there are a myriad of reasons for that, but let's, um, let's try to pick off uh, one here in particular, or at least one way that that can kind of work its way into our heart. Talk to us about the challenge 
of particularly maybe in, in early seasons of your Christian life or maybe even entering, entering into new seasons where you're having to think with discernment about life in a new arena or context, the challenge of knowing what I actually need to, to run from and eliminate from my life versus what I have to just say this is a, a part of the providential plan of God for my life in regards to circumstances that I might have to be exposed to in regards to temptations that I need to be able to effectively battle. And maybe some of the mistakes we might make in there and, and how we can best walk our way through that type of process. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Colossians warns in chapter 2 that external isolation from things that uh, whatever your viewpoint uh, were put in the category of dangerous to you, wrong, uh, that that has no power against fleshly indulgence. Um, which is why the monastic lifestyle of monks in the medieval periods and, and through church history never really brought sanctification as <clears throat> they might have even intended and wanted because that kind of isolation doesn't sanctify. There's no power against fleshly indulgence there. Uh, but there's no, there's no um, reason for us to imagine that um, if an environment is tempting to you that you shouldn't get away from it if you can. If you can't, you, you, you realize the external isolation is not the solution. It's a heart change and a, an insulation by scripture. But all that to say, we, we do have to realize that external accountability, external isolation from certain things, uh, it, it isn't in and of itself the solution. God's word and what we talked about tonight is the solution. But it does get difficult if, <clears throat> if you don't know how to discern that. So it's interesting that Hebrews 5 says you, by practicing the scriptures... And what it's talking about there is in contrast to simplistic um, atrophy, sort of like staying in the basics only. Well, I'm saved. I know Christ. I, I, look, I traffic in gospel generalities. I come and listen to sermons and I take little simple things away. But I don't want it to be too hard. I don't want it to be, you know, real difficult to understand. Look. This is God's word. It's God's truth. He, he did not give us his revelation in a way for us to just glance at it and everything pours in and it's, no, we're going to have to press into God, press into his revelation, press into his word. So if you just traffic in generalities, you're not going to then be learning discernment by practice. You have to take the deep truths of God, the things of God that you're learning, and put them in places in your life where they automatically and immediately apply. And then you'll start to see with a new grid. You'll notice worldly ideologies coming through that coworker or that activity that you do. You'll begin to uh, see a contrast because what'll happen is, I like to call it flags going up in your mind. Or to use another figure, your spiritual nerve endings are being sensitized by the truth and they're getting touched by things in your life, places, people, um, things that you read, things that you see, a friendship you have, a family member that's an influence. 
They're touching your spiritual sensitivities. And now your, your alarms are going off. Hey, I don't, you know, I don't want to be caught up. I don't want to be subtly duped or taken in. It's interesting that maybe Romans 16 is a great way to look at it because he talks there, Paul does, about us taking note of certain people in the church who are false believers and their flattering speech seduces. Their clever terminology. So if we could take false teachers and, and take them out for a moment of just the category of the most sinister kind that we see on TV, but let's just think about somebody comes in with a subtle way to talk about the way they live the Christian life, some, some way in which this is the new, this is the secret, this is the Gnostic way, and your antenna is going off. There's flags going up because you're saturated now with truth, and when that happens, then you don't ignore it. You're, you're learning discern, discernment between good and evil, and you're seeing it at the front end. In the case of a circumstance you cannot change, like I, I had that when I became a Christian, I, I was afraid of any evil influence, and I tried the old isolation thing. You know, I, got, I was part of an independent Baptist church where the it was a fairly immature version of it, and, and they were always isolating from the world. And what they meant by that is they were, you know, really a, uh, a very immature group of people who self-righteously condemned the mission field, <laughs> and it wasn't worth our time. Well, I didn't see that right up front. I just liked the idea that having come out of wickedness, I was now saved. I was going to get away from all that. Well, in some ways, the Lord protected me, but I wasn't immature. I had an immature conscience. Well, then I go into the United States Air Force in those dynamics, and, and there's sinful people all around me. And, but what was happening was I, I wasn't as easily duped by the ideologies I was hearing and the friendships that I had at work. There was a context for that um, that often got me in trouble. Like, I, I was a crew chief. I had uh, people on my crew that we, we did our work at the tactical training squadron there, and they were worldly people. And at lunch breaks and during work, they had attitudes and talk and ideas, and they would banter about it and laugh about it. And I'm standing there, but I had to peel away. And at one point, I remember one of my, uh, one of the members of my team she came to me and said, why do you always walk away when we talk about those things? Aren't, you know, you're supposed to be our team leader and, and with us. There's a, there's a team camaraderie here you're supposed to be a part of. I said, well, I am a part of you, and I, I, I'm a part of this team, and I, I love the team, but sometimes your language and your terms and your ideas and things like that are going to go down a road I can't endorse because it goes against my beliefs and i got to step away. And I, I remember she said, well, you're judging us. I said, well, not, not me personally judging you, but if I have a belief that Christ has given me in the word of God and you are uh, someone who is trying to get everyone to sort of be an endorsing part of the conversation, then I'm going to have that worldliness splash on my Savior and I can't do that, so i got to try to separate from that a little bit. So it gets you in trouble 
But I, I didn't want to be, you know, after that, well, you guys are a stigma because I'm in the world. I can't leave the world till the Lord takes me home and I'm not going to be a part of their ethics because there's no harmony with darkness and light, but I, I'm going to work it through. And if I have to live with my conscience, my conscience is maturing and it's not always where it needs to be. And, and uh, you know, that, that takes time. Romans 14 makes that clear. But, but whatever wasn't of faith is sin. And I, I had to sort of settle into the maturing process God had me in. So if you can't control the circumstances, that's the work you're going to do. You're going to think it through from a, a little more careful standpoint that way. And anytime I was tempted, I'll, I'll tell you this, anytime someone of a friendship in the world was a temptation to my flesh, in other words, what they were doing and what they were a part of appealed to my flesh. I had to be honest about that. That is appealing to my flesh. Others may, I may not, because that appeals to my flesh. I mean, that was huge for me because I was a musician. I was involved in music, and sometimes the, you know, obviously the world of secular music isn't all overtly evil, but its culture and its subculture is problematic, to say the least. Young people get swept up in and seduced into worldliness through that avenue all the time. And I was in it. So if it was appealing to my flesh and, and it was on my conscience, I just decided I had to back away from some of those things. And that meant I have to not be involved in some things I really loved. You know, to make hard decisions. I wanted to, I guess I wanted to end the time here, keying off of that, that last point or the second to last point that you talked about in strengthening your faith muscle. I know one of the things I've always appreciated is, is the way that you emphasize faith, particularly in matters of sanctification, which I think is a really just absolutely essential, you know, category for us to understand that what we're actually being asked to do in times when we're called to put to death sin and grow in Christ as we're being called to exercise faith. And, and so I wanted, I wanted you guys, I'm going to bounce back and forth, so I'm, I'm going to challenge you here. I'm not going to do like a one-word answer or something silly like that that usually ends up just, you know, limiting clarity. But I, I do want, we're going to have to be short because what I have here is, is six seasons of life. Six different seasons of life that I think would represent kind of the, the major seasons that we all have to walk through. And as you guys think about as pastors, maybe just tell me, we'll, we'll go bounce back and forth for each, each new season. I want you guys to tell me, what, are, what would you say are the, the primary burdens or the primary burden that you would say, here's how you need to strengthen your faith muscle in that particular season. So let's begin, Jerry, with you, and let's begin with on the, the younger side. Talk, about, talk to the teenagers in our congregation and talk to us about how they would need to strengthen their faith muscle. Submission to authority. This is one of the greatest struggles early in our life. It's a struggle all through our life. But if you, if you bring your passions under the authority of your home life that God has given you, your parents are flawed, but if you bring yourself under the authorities that God has placed, you're bringing yourself under the authority of God, and therefore it's the beginning of wisdom because you're fearing God. 
So that would be the biggest thing. Lance, how about the young single season of life? So we're talking beyond the teenage years, now we're into the adult years, not yet into our married life. What would you say is the primary burden you would think about for strengthening your faith? Be careful with lust and passion. Passion can be neutral in the sense that it doesn't have to be inherently evil, but often the left-hand turn is into lust, passion becoming lust. So as a young person, uh, immerse yourself in the scriptures that emphasize both the passions of the heart, even in 1 Timothy 3, it talks about a person who aspires to be an elder, a, a pastor, a preacher. It is a fine work he desires to do. And that word desire in its context is positive, though it's the same word that's used elsewhere in negative contexts that is usually translated not as desire, but as lust, sinful passions. So learn the scriptures and memorize those scriptures that speak of how passion can be a very godly and godward enterprise, but it could also be a very, very perilous journey if it works its way into lust and the ways that we bring our lusts into action, which is usually a dead-end street and could even alter the very trajectory of our life. Jerry, early married season of life, trying to establish home life and married life. What are the ways we need to exercise and stretch our faith muscles in that season? Well, that's a good one. I was trying to think of it from the man's perspective, but it's you're really asking about the whole package. And early married life, I think you've got to exercise the faith muscle around the area of the the long game. Sanctification in marriage is about God's work over the long haul. What happens early in marriage is we just imagine that the frustrations and early conflicts are really how our life is going to be. That's how life's going to be. And so I'm already unfulfilled and I'm already miserable and this person's flaws are messing up my life. I have some, but wow, they have all these, you know. And so the long haul, God has given me a gift. Marriage is the grace of life. And it's the long game and the crucifixion of my own flesh in it that, that will matter most. So that's where I would work the faith muscle, thinking about this in terms of what is God doing through this in my life in terms of making me like Christ and not so much about the fulfillment of all the little things in marriage that I so long for. Lance, where do you need to shepherd your heart towards faith when shepherding young children in, in your home? Patience. Uber patience. We love, we love them so much. We care about them. 
we, we laugh with them and at them in terms of all that they do. And yet they can be so exasperating to us in those young years. So patience is a faith strengthener to the max. And, you know, Beth and I attempting to raise eight children when at one point the oldest was a 12th grader and the youngest was a first grader. So a lot of times, especially with bigger families, you are, you are covering the gamut of parenting. And there are so many ways and means to both do right things, but also to try to parent them in ways that one size fits all, and it doesn't. One size doesn't fit all, and you have to be patient and if you're exasperated, and if you are angry, and if you are coming at them with a scowl, uh, you can bet that you are discipling them to do the same thing as they, as they age. So patience is phenomenally important that will stretch that faith muscle. Jerry, done some work for us as a congregation on the teen years. Talk to us about the primary faith muscles that need to be stretched when shepherding teens. Two, two things. One, um, it's when we're tempted to sinfully fear the most, and we have to fear God more than um, the reputation difficulties when teens are struggling um, and, and ultimately fearing God when somebody runs amok. I want their soul. Their soul's more important than all the other idolatries we might have as parents that we have to work on. The second thing, of course, is just brutal honesty in the dynamic of your own life before your teens. Real Christianity lived out in front of them means you're, you're going to talk to them not like a, like some cardboard Christian caricature, but you're going to talk to them about real issues of the Christian life that you deal with and you know they're getting ready to face. So you're going to seek their forgiveness for your sin. You're going to let them know that their difficulty is no different than the battles you have to face. But if they're not in Christ, then you plead for them to be in Christ because you have the power of Christ to actually change. And that's what allows you to see them rightly. So all the other things Lance said are crucial, the patience and all that, but, but I, I, teens want to know, I mean, beyond their selfishness and the industrial strength desires they're not able to deal with yet, they do want to know, <clears throat> is this real? Mm -hmm. Is this genuine? I mean, it just sometimes feels so phony, and I want to be hidden, and everybody's just doing these smiley things, and uh, they're all in our world, and I just want to go to my room, close the door, and be in my little deal, um, parents need to be the kind of open door they can come talk to because you're just very real about the Christian life. There's no phoniness about it. It's difficult. It's challenging. Mom and dad are sinners just like you, and, and we, we struggle, and we need to seek your forgiveness a lot too, and mm. that kind of thing. That's a faith strength in our own parents' part. Last category. Lance, the latter seasons of life, empty nest, and beyond. 
Not that I'm, I'm there, Brian. Um, it's, it's somewhat approaching. I thought uh, it was a great question for you, brother. At least now that I'm over the hill, I'm picking up speed. Um, careening down the cliff, of course, but I think, I think perseverance and faithfulness. When you are aging and your body is breaking down, you aren't who you used to be, you can't do the things that you used to, to want to do and could do it easily, and you're more tired, your brain is not as fast as it used to be in either recall or even in some easy things like being able to you know, form your sentences and say them quickly. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things that can greatly discourage older persons. And some of them are tempted to say, well, I ju I'm just going to give up. But perseverance and faithfulness, especially that concept of faithfulness, as it relates to our showing the younger generation, that our life is still valuable to God. Jay Adams wrote a book with a great title, good, good material in the book itself, but a great title, Wrinkled But Not Ruined. <laughs> and there's a temptation in the church to say nothing of the world to come to a place where we don't assume we're valuable, necessary, uh, our contribution is meager, and I think those are all satanic ploys. The one thing that even the oldest of us can do is pray, and what a ministry that can be. Heaven will only record the... Uh, the answers to prayers from faithful saints uh, about how the rest of us were prayed for and the strength of our ministry was directly related to their prayers. And I think perseverance and faithfulness to the end is that which would probably in our older ages honor God the most. Thank you, men, for shepherding us through this tonight. What a, what a joy and a privilege and a help. So appreciate it. Jerry, would you close us in prayer? <clears throat> Lord, we, we long to understand uh, your word in this way and to strive together according to the strength and power which you supply by your spirit. We long to honor you and prefer you above all, to love you as you have loved us, and if the battle intensifies as you've promised it would, then in every season may we, uh, may we yield to your spirit and believe fully entrusted, placing ourselves at your disposal. And in times of discouragement, may we run to you and boldly pray and hope beyond hope because of Christ that you are at work. We can hardly fathom that we are your masterpiece, but you have said it is so, and that these good works 
are to be the pattern of our life. So help us to, uh, out of joy in it, and thankfulness to you for strengthening us for it, protecting us from the evil one through it, and ultimately the conformity to your wonderful perfection and your godly love and character. May all of that come to fruition in our lives as we strive in these things, Lord. We pray uh, for your grace and strength in it together as a people. In Jesus' name, amen.